scripture passage in your bulletin uh, this morning. I will say that God has designed the scriptures in a wonderful way, and, and one of those uh, ways has to do with how we can even learn from uh, pagan people uh, within His holy word. And I think that's one thing we're looking at today, how we can learn they were believers, so I have to think we have to assume uh, that they were unbelievers. Let's use this passage as a unison reading, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. famous movies has dialogue that still remember today. Pete Aunt Luke is the movie I'm talking about, where the warden in that movie says, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. And you know, good communication is so important whenever and wherever there is more than one person. In any kind of enterprise, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a marital relationship, whether it's a school classroom, whether it's a job, whatever it happens to be, good communication is so important. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille found that out one day. You know, he was a great movie director, had those epic blockbuster-type films like The Ten Commandments. He seemed to like uh, to put together that kind of film where there was all sorts of people and extras involved in it. In this particular film, it wasn't the Ten Commandments, but another of his, uh, it was a very involved scene. And he had six cameras taking care of all the major action. Then he had five more cameras set up for dialogue between the main characters, and this particular scene, they had started to rehearse at 6 a.m. that morning, and now it was later afternoon, and he thought that maybe they had just enough light to get this thing on film. And so he checked everything and made sure that all was ready, and he said, action. And with that word, a hundred extras charged up a hill. At the same time, another hundred extras were coming down the same hill to enact 
a battle while at the same time in an adjacent location, Roman centurions were whipping and screaming at about 200 slaves who were trying to get this tremendous stone moved. Meanwhile, the primary characters in dialogue were giving their reactions to the battle that was taking place on the hill. And of course, all that action drowned out their voices, but that didn't matter. They were going to be dubbed in later anyway. It took 15 minutes to complete this entire scene encompassing more than 400 actors and extras. And when it was over, Demille yelled out, Cut! And with this great grin on his face, he turned to his assistant and said, That was great! And the assistant yelled back, Yes, it was fantastic! Everything went off perfectly as it should. And with those words, Demille turned to his camera supervisor, the one who made sure that all the cameras were getting what the cameras were supposed to receive. He was way up on top of that hill where the battle had been taking place, and DeMille waved at him, and he waved back and put his megaphone up and said, ready when you are, CB. Now, what DeMille had there was a failure to communicate. But notice we don't find that happening. When it comes to God communicating with individuals, whether they are believers or not. Take these wise men, for example. They would have been the cream of the crop, highly educated men, men who could converse in subjects like science and medicine, wisdom, astrology, and astronomy. In function, they would have been similar to what Daniel and his friends did for the king of Babylon in the book of, uh, book of Daniel. This is the kinds of things they would have been doing, answering whatever questions their king had. But these magis were pagans, so far as we know, serving a, a pagan king, whether it was in Babylon or Arabia or wherever it happened to be, it was somewhere to the east. But obviously, stars had significance for these men. And so we can see in our passage how God comes down to the level of these magi in order to communicate with them. He sent a star to herald the birth of the Messiah to the world. And the first thing that I want you to notice is how these wise men show us that they are open uh, to whatever God has to say to them. And we know that because they come to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star. God, the, the creator of the world, the one who puts the stars in place and allows them to shine or not, as Job teaches us in his ninth chapter, this God is communicating to these magi through this star, and they are listening. They have no problem understanding his message, and he's speaking to them by what they experience. We see something similar happen to Moses. You know, if you want a good Old Testament example of this kind of openness, think about Mo 
Moses and what we find out about him in Exodus chapter 3. Because we're told there that he's taking care of Jethro's chief. That's his father-in-law. Out in the wilderness. And that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight. And we can go on to read there in Exodus 3 that when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, don't come near. Put off your shoes from your feet for the land in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And of course, if you know anything about Exodus 3 at all, you know this is when God proceeds to call Moses to go to the land of Egypt and by the power that God will supply him to bring out his people to free them from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, do you see what this means? God can do all kinds of things in and through those people, people just like us, who are open, who are watching, and who are listening. In this time, after the cross, we would say those who are attuned to His Holy Spirit and what He's doing in the world around us. I just wonder, do we have this kind of open attitude with God? It's interesting to me that even though God had told His people century after century through the prophets that He would send the gift of the Messiah, He chooses to use these pagan wise men to declare the birth in person to the Holy Spirit, to the people of Jerusalem. These wise men may not have known all of the details, but they are preachers of sorts, proclaiming the birth and the coming of the Messiah, this one they refer to as the King of the Jews. And what really impresses me about these wise men is that not only are they open to what God is saying to them, but they're willing to act on what God helps them to see, even if it costs them a great deal of time and money and effort. notice this because sometimes I think you and I receive messages from God. We receive promptings from the Holy Spirit, if you want to refer to it in those terms, and we don't do anything about it. I sometimes hear this from people standing on the floor of presbytery, students of theology who are trying to come under the care of presbytery, and sometimes they're 35 years of age or they're 50 years of age. And they'll say something in their testimony like this. They'll say, you know, I've been called by God to preach for years, but I've been running away from it and I'm finally going to submit to His will. It's sort of like Jonah. You know, 
Jonah told him what he wanted him to do, to go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach repentance, what did Jonah do? He went the opposite way. He wasn't going to listen. He wasn't open to what God was saying to him. But these wise men were not like Jonah. They saw the star, received the message, and began to, to work at what they had to do. You know, most scholars estimate, even though we're not sure exactly where they came from, most estimate they must have traveled 900 to 1,000 miles one way. And we're talking about a four- to five-month trip with an entire entourage of people, you know, servants to do all the medial tasks. You have soldiers to uh, protect them from thieves and bandits, and then we have the Magi themselves, which could have been three in number, like the old hymn, but most likely was more like ten or twelve. I mean, think about the expense of outfitting a caravan like that to go that far with that many people, and then to return and come home, and we haven't even mentioned uh, the cost of the extravagant gifts that are, they are bringing to this new kingdom. You have to be willing to act on what you hear and pay whatever cost or sacrifice it takes. Now, a New Testament example of someone like this is the Apostle Paul, it seems to me, on that famous road to Damascus. You know, he was on his way to Damascus to continue to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He was going to round up as many Christians as he could find and put them in the jail when he was arrested from the sky by Jesus Christ. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what did Paul do? Well, he was simply told to rise and enter the city and wait to be told what to do. So Paul does that. He went to the city of Damascus. But he remained blind and he waited until Ananias came to see him and Ananias laid his hands upon him and he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 9, we can read that in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, just like the wise men, Paul was willing to act on what God had helped him to see, and we know it cost him a great deal. For as Jesus told Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Of course, in our text, you can make the argument that Herod also acted on what he heard. And that we can read in verse 3 that when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod was troubled, Matthew tells us, disturbed even as the NIV has it. And that's because Herod was quite old by this time. And the older he became, the more cruel ruler he became, and the more paranoid he became.
because he always thought someone was going to try and take his crown. And I've told you before about how ruthless he was, uh, executing his own wife, his own mother-in-law, his own children, because of this paranoia. But even though he was paranoid, Herod was very shrewd. We can see that he calls two groups of religious leaders together, the chief priests on the one hand and the scribes on the other, in order to make sure that he receives the information that he needs. As one commentator put it, these two groups stood at the opposite ends of Jewish leadership. Scribes were conservative teachers of the Scripture, bent on preserving traditional Jewish culture. In other words, in our time, a modern-day example, maybe, of them would be the Orthodox Jews that we see in places like New York City, where they're bent on, on preserving all of this culture that comes with the Jewish faith. The chief priests, on the other hand, were Sadducees, and they were willing to accommodate Roman power as long as they were in good with those who were in power. And they were willing to accommodate Greek culture so that they could hold on to their power. They were the ones who would go out and make friends with people like Pilate or Herod or whomever. Now, it may be that Herod had the idea that if these two different, very different groups came up with the same answer, then it must be right as to where this new king would be born. And, of course, we know he has ulterior motives. And they both answered the same, citing the prophet Micah, the fifth chapter, in Bethlehem in Judea. Now, it's easy for us to see about these chief priests and these scribes that they know Scripture. They can even quote it. And yet, have you ever noticed that once these two groups of religious leaders give their answer, we hear no more about them or from them from Matthew in this particular story. I mean, these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders, these people who knew the Scriptures so well that they could answer the question immediately, where the Messiah is going to be born, surely they're looking for that same Messiah. But we don't hear anything about, oh, you mean the Messiah's coming? Well, we want to come with you. We don't see anything like that. We don't hear anything like that. As one scholar reminds us, the apathy of the teachers and priests is pathetic, but all too typical. Now, why would he say something like that? Because in the Gospels, we can see that the religious people were often the very last ones to receive Jesus if they received him at all. And I don't know about you, but this fact causes concern for me because I'm a religious person. And we can see what that scholar means just a little later in Matthew's Gospel in the 11th chapter. For there we can see where Jesus begins to rebuke the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they failed to repent. You know, this is that passage where he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in time, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Tyre and Sidon are pagan cities in Phoenicia. Cities that the Gospels tell us he visited, but not really to minister. You know, he only came to minister to the elect, to the nation of Israel. I think he went there because they're coastal cities. You know, in ancient times, people liked the beach just like we like the beach. I think that's why he went to Tyre and Sidon. He's saying that these pagans would have responded to his ministry had he preached there in a positive way, much more so than the cities in Galilee near his home base of operations. And then in that same 11th chapter, he goes on to say, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. if the mighty works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom. They would have repented long ago. What's Capernaum to Jesus? It's his home base of operations. It's where he goes back. It's where the people know him the best. It's the people who would have heard him probably speak and teach more than any other people, more than any other city, and would have seen miracle after miracle. Or would they? Because they didn't seem to have too much faith. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Between Sodom and Capernaum. I just wonder, what would Jesus say to you and me? Micah the prophet, you see, not only tells us that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, but he also gives us one of the purposes of the Incarnation. Not the only purpose, but one of the purposes. And he says there, as he quotes Micah 5, that this ruler will shepherd his people Israel. Now what does a shepherd do? Think about Psalm 23. A shepherd leads the sheep. A shepherd guides the sheep. A shepherd takes care of the sheep. According to Jesus in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In this busy time of the year, and in this scary time of this particular year, are you listening to the shepherd? Do you hear his voice? Is he leading you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? It's precisely because Jesus was born and saw fit to die on the cross for our sins and the sins of the world that, that our cup overflows. That's why it's the good news of Advent that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. 
Let's pray together.